Welcome to Mont Icons. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we've produced this podcast, the Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung people. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Yes, 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 yes. In this episode of Mont Icons, we speak to Amiel Corton-Wilson, one of Australia's last puritanical art house filmmakers. Amiel Corton-Wilson, welcome. Hey there, good to be here. What have you been up to during these uh, strange, uh, prison-esque times in your beautiful apartment above a tattoo studio? Well, actually, coming over to your guys' studio over in Paran, I had some very strange memories walking down Gravel Street because uh, my sister was born in the front room of our block of flats in Gravel Street, and uh, I spent the first eight years of my life um, seeing that street gentrified to the shithouse. Um, my dad used to work as part of a anarchist printing collective called Backyard Press on Gravel Street in the mid-'70s. So walking down that street... A lot of strange memories. Um, walked past where my sister was born. That's what happened today. Well, what was Paran like back then? Because it had a pretty wild reputation even when I was growing up. Paran was amazing back then. I mean, like my earliest memories before the station hotel got done up and when there was a whole bunch of... I mean, my dad was part of the music scene in the early 70s here. So in the early 70s, there was a a really big anti-Vietnam War student protest movement. So there was a, a part of the moratorium. Um, organisers, a lot of the bases were sort of coming out of Paran and um, there was the old amazing Leggett's Ballroom, which in the 20s was this ballroom that the roof would um, actually retract and you'd have uh, open sky, like ballroom dancing. And so that was still a venue, I think, in the late 60s. Transylvanian restaurants, lots of great stuff. But it was up until the eighties, it was still it was still great. And then now, really, Greville Street Records is like probably the last store that I can remember from back then. So it's the last place that's that's lasted. What can you tell us about the printing press? You're... Yeah, that's uh, so. Um, that was run by a guy. He was ex. Carlton footballer called Ted Hopkins, who was also a poet, amazing guy still kicking around. And uh, they used to make their money doing rock posters. So they would do, um, you know, posters for Midnight Oil and Goanna and a bunch of, you know, sort of Australian rock and pop acts. But that was just to fund their more political stuff. So they did a, um, they did all kinds of things. A lot of, you know, obviously a lot of work for Amnesty and human rights groups and, um, it was set up as a yeah as like an anarchist collective so um, there was a you know it was a it was a pretty amazing hotbed it was right next door to Ted also had an experimental music kind of home venue out of his studio next to Backyard Press so and we lived right next door to that so my earliest memories were going in to see you know people like Rainer Lintz this German experimental um, uh keyboard player from the early 80s doing performances there and there'd be like you know music concrete stuff going on and um it was a it was an amazing time but sadly by around i would say like 88 most people were kind of either forced to move on actually i remember we had opposite our our block of flats we had this amazing ongoing feud with a bunch of bikers (laughs) right we'd be um which ended in them throwing rocks through our front window and and nearly yeah, but um, my um, I would I would look out, walk out the um, front door as a four or five year old, and there'd always uh, be this at least one naked guy pissing off the balcony of the terrace op- opposite ours. So it was a it was a loose it was a loose but at but good party vibe on that street. <laughs> Do you have any um, memories of the um, having walked in on any committee meetings or? just being witness to them kind of making decisions because I imagine as a as a child that would have been quite fascinating. Yeah, it was it was there was a lot of like oh, I remember like the smell of like pouches of tobacco, endless cups of tea and the, mixed with like the the printing press 
chemicals. So there's this very strong sense memory as a four or five year old. And there'd be, you know, there'd be some like heated discussions because obviously it was a, there was a pretty finite resources because there was only so much money they could make from the rock poster work. So, um, yeah, I remember they did once, uh, there was a, a great subversive publication they put out called Art and Texter, which was a, a, a riff on art and text. So it was a, they were, yeah, they were looking at, you know, trying to um, lampoon the kind of art elite or the intelligentsia of the time. There was a, it was still, it was, I suppose it was mid to late seventies. So there was still that sense of being able to kind of topple certain structures. Um, I think it lasted till about 84, I think. Yeah. 84, 85. Yeah. That would have been wild. Like, um, were there any, was there any kind of direct action things that you kind of knew about that, that, that they were inspiring or, and yeah. the actual violence that was coming coming out of those out of those meetings that you you could feel as a young child that kind of inspired you. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. I mean, like I, I remember because my dad was heavily involved in um, some of the El Salvadorian um, like refugees that had come out um, in the middle of that whole that whole terrible time. So he was doing a lot of like relief work with those guys who were you know, basically victims of torture and, and having to get them acclimatized to, you know, going to the dentist or just dealing with basic, you know, parts of life, having been through that kind of trauma. So I remember there was like, there were whispers of a, of a few people who may or may not have gone over to El Salvador to um, may or may not have, um, yeah, fix up a couple of um, fascists over there. That was a, that was, you know, one, one story that circulated in the, in the mid eighties. That's fucking fascinating. It's pretty, it's pretty, pretty amazing. It was a pretty amazing, um, time. Yeah. He, he was, he was really heavily involved from about 82 to 89. Um, but the, but that whole, I mean, that whole scene is, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, part of a straight, like the, the union movement as it relates to certain like overseas, uh, yeah, shenanigans is it's 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 pretty pretty amazing stuff that was going down. You know a bit about this too, DXA, like um, these networks of anarchists that kind of take direct action in really inspiring ways. Hey, eh? yeah, this was basically my background when I was a child. Was like um, you know, teenager was sitting in on a lot of these meetings where um, occasionally they'd just hit the peak of what could be discussed, and then would have to break out off into kind of smaller cells and smaller kind of discussions. So, yeah, you'd, you'd hear hints of like and, and, and kind of a bit of bravado around ideas that were to happen. And then um, sensibly um, people would kind of pull away into their separate groups to actually really pro- properly um, kind of brew up these plans. But, um, yeah, it's definitely a, a kind of very important important experience to go through these these um like committee meetings where people are like deciding from like strikes marches to kind of more um uh sabotage kind of related things um but never really kind of being too too young to be invited into those kind of inner discussions and then later on being directly affected on a couple of occasions by plans that just weren't made properly or that had fallen to pieces so um yeah that definitely resonates with me i'm really like what do you think about this because i have this sneaking suspicion that no one has the 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 balls to to pull this kind of shit off these days you don't hear about these like cells um you know making the most of their ideas or turning their ideas into sacrifices you know sacrificing themselves for ideology or to for you know political change uh, in, in a very kind of like sure people sacrifice time and, and and do a lot of things like that chain themselves to trees or whatever but you know I don't really hear about people like um, you know the Spanish terrorists or like you know the people that really were willing to face life imprisonment or treason for for their for their beliefs politically yeah it's a, it's a really interesting point there's a there's an amazing guy uh he just sent me his memoirs actually he's a guy called michael hyde who was 
definitely on the the more militant end of the spectrum. Um, certainly, the, you know, the, my father was, but he, he's he had you know a huge ASIO file on him, and and they were part of. I have to get this right, but they they were definitely part of a, about as close as you could get to. Um, remember, they were publicly giving funds to the Viet Cong during the Vietnam War, and there was a big uproar around that, and and. I mean, I think at that point they still, you know, sincerely believed in being able to affect change with with that. And I, I suppose if, you know, I mean, not at all being well versed in in the in in this today, but I, I would I would imagine that it's about a, not an apathy, but just I suppose a, a sense that this direct action won't necessarily affect you know, have enough impact. So therefore there's a erosion in people's sense of being able to, you know, um, yeah, make an impact with relatively small groups of people. As a, as a filmmaker, um, I'd like your kind of perspective on, on whether this stuff has been given its due in Australian cinema or, or whether it, it could be, um, what's your, what's your opinion? Let's, let's get into movies and you. So let's hear about that. Yeah. Cause I think, uh, this this leads leads to to your films quite nicely because a lot of your central figures and characters are willing to make deep sacrifices philosophically or personally for their way of life or their beliefs. Um, thinking Jack Charles, um, even chasing Buddha, Cecil in many ways. You know he could have had a a very different career if he was to be a you know a classic or jazz pianist or like a traditional jazz pianist but yeah what do you make of all that and how it's kind of seeped and infected your work totally yeah i think uh i mean it it comes from seeing you know as a kid again having to divorced artists for parents and as a six-year-old seeing you know on a on a micro level seeing my mum work as a waitress and as, and as a cleaner and then having to do her painting from 10 p.m. till 2 in the morning and that being a very early memory and that instilling in me this very strong sense of a work ethic and you know and personal sacrifice and and discipline and i think that then fed into me searching for that uh later in life and really being governed by you know, a, a curiosity that led me towards people who who had an urgency in their work, not only um, that I respected in terms of their artistic output, but for whom, if you had the very strong sense that if they didn't make this work, that they might not be around too long, or that you know it was a, it was a it was a fundamental to their existence that they that they purge this or that they get this out into the world. So I think that's been the they've been the kind of writers, artists, musicians that I've been really attracted to or have, you know, held up in high esteem to kind of look towards for my own um my own practice or filmmaking. I mean that's whether that's like uh Arto or um Rain and Werner Fassbinder or Simone Weil. Uh there's a, a range of people who, you know, keep keep coming back as a as a constellation of figures in that in that regard i know i mean my own work i suppose uh i started very personally like my first documentary i made when i was 17 for the abc was about my own family and about myself um and then subsequently worked in concentric circles kind of moving out from there so my second film chasing buddha was about uh my aunt rabina Corton, who's a buddhist nun teaching buddhism to uh, death row inmates and prison inmates around the united states so I you know, made a film about my auntie. My third film was about um, my best friend, this this guy Vinny, who's half Samoan, half German, whose whose dad had um, met his mum uh, after protesting the uh, French nuclear testing in Muroa Atoll in the mid seventies, and uh, and then after that, my following film was a, a f- yeah a, f- a film that took up most of my twenties, a film called Barsity, which is about Aboriginal elder and the. Um, uh, the first uh, person to start an indigenous theatre company um, in the early 70s with Bob Mazza. And so I made a film about a, a gentleman called Jack Charles. I mean, to me, in many regards, he is an, a countercultural icon uh, in Melbourne. And I think many would agree. Many might just think he's an icon more generally, but definitely the way he's lived his life. I mean, I'll let you speak about it. Mm, yeah, no, I mean, I, I was, I remember very clearly it was, it was 2000 and, uh, I was looking for another film to make. I was sort of, you know, looking, doing 
just you know, as you do a bunch of research into possible stories and 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 um, reading a bunch of you know articles and books and and just talking to people and having a conversation with my uncle uh, Ian and so Ian had done some writing with the Pram Factory a theatre company in the late 60s and had um, written a couple of pieces for Jack Charles um, and Jack was always a kind of a mythical figure growing up he was a family friend so my mum met him when she was I think 16 um, he wasn't around very much but he was always just someone you'd sort of hear stories about or you know occasionally hear stories of this what what stories were you hearing so the, the stories were that there was this uh, you know pretty um, chaotic but remarkably talented uh, figure who was not only a cat burglar but also an amazing stage performer and you know actor for, for screen um, who had you know, very tragically uh, developed a pretty heavy heroin addiction and uh, had become homeless, really, and so and, and spent a lot of time in prison. So um, I asked my uncle and aunt to, to try to help me track him down. And at that point, Jack was actually living up in Sydney. He was living in a squat with, um, do you remember that serial pest who was going around, you know, doing a whole bunch of public um, events? Peter? That's right. What's yeah. his surname? We'll figure it out. But yeah. yeah, so somehow Jack Charles found... The horse race? Yep, yep, yep. So Jack Charles found himself living in a squat with this guy. I've never heard this story, and that's such a wonderful combination of people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and apparently this guy was just like rubbing everyone the absolute fucking wrong way in this squat. And something, something went very pear-shaped. I don't know the exact details, but the squat ended up being firebombed because of either Peter or maybe someone else. Um, so anyway, Jack had just kind of escaped Sydney and had come back down to Melbourne. So it was perfect timing. We organised, um, uh, I don't know how it even happened because Jack certainly didn't have a mobile phone or a house. So I think we somehow got a message to him, organised a, a meeting in a cafe on Brunswick Street. Um, I remember bringing my camera uh, I didn't quite know what was going to happen. I remember being quite nervous. I was only 21 at the time and Jack was 58. And uh, he sat down, uh, bought Jack a coffee. You know, he started speaking straight away, launching into his life story, just, you know, just starting pretty much from the beginning. So from the, you know, um, his story of him being taken at, um, at you know, 10 weeks old from his uh, mother. So he, just for those that don't know, can you just illustrate what he looked like when you first saw him and did it, how did that marry with, with your um, the myth that you'd constructed in your head? So Jack is a diminutive um, and yet somehow larger-than-life figure all at once. He's, I would say, what, how tall is he? He's, he's, quite, he's quite a small gentleman, but that's like outweighed by his enormous grey afro and enormous, enormous beard. And he sort of, he, um, he uh, just, I remember that the first thing that really struck me about him was even in that, that first meeting, there was a, there was an, an affability and an openness and a kind of a leaning into even the smallest of human interactions that I would learn later was really such a key part of his personality that, and the thing that in some ways influenced me the most about Jack, which is his, his equanimity and whether it was him dealing with, you know, his closest oldest friend who he'd known for 40 years or a bus driver that he'd just met that afternoon, there was the same degree of warmth, of willingness to connect. And I, I over the years that we worked together, uh, in some ways that more than anything else is really what um, I took on board, you know, as just as a human being, just, just that, um, that endless uh, ability to lean into any interaction and see the, the good in it and the potential in it um, and um, and the the worth and and for that reason you know I think Jack is probably has more friends and knows more people as a 70 nearly 78 so he's a 78 year old than anyone I've ever met so yeah so basically um, he was uh, he just started talking and after about three minutes he's like are you going to start filming me are we going to start this okay fine I took my camera out we started recording like did a 40 minute interview then and there and then he at the end of the interview um you know sort of he was kind of umming and ahhing for a second and wasn't quite sure what was 
going on. They said, oh, you know, if you could maybe spot me a 50, that'd be great. You know, I just need to get a few things. and I'm just running a bit short at this moment. So I was like, yeah, it's fine. Here's, here's 50 bucks. Um, and from the outset, he was really, really adamant about wanting this film to be, a, a, as in his words, a warts and all portrayal of what his life was at that point in time, which was, you know, he was sleeping under bridges in laundries, occasionally crashing with friends and family, but that was like very occasional. Um, and he had a, so it was homeless and basically um, he was on a, he was on a pretty uh, hot streak of, of committing these um, burglaries. Um, so he would basically, uh, yeah, he, he targeted predominantly the Eastern suburbs. So the inner East, so he'd do um, Kew, Hawthorne, Turak, South Yarra. Um, and he'd been, uh, basically, as he would call it, collecting the rent from these houses and mansions. For people that don't live in Melbourne, can you just talk about like the significance of that area and why he targeted that area? Yeah, so so basically, you know, in the south side or across the the Yarra, um, there's an amazing story actually. Shelton Lee, this um, poet friend of Jack's, told me that during the Depression in Melbourne, there were plans afoot, very serious plans, to actually blow up the bridges. Um, connecting the north and the south because there was this very real fear that the working class in suburbs like Richmond that were still populating the you know from the turn of the century the workers' cottages and and that part of of Melbourne they were that the you know the um the unwashed hordes were going to cross the Yarra and and invade the um the wealthy uh, neck of the woods being South Yarra Hawthorne Kew um, so it's it's really where it's where you get the um, the most uh, you know, ridiculously obscene mansions in Melbourne, to to put it, you know, um, bluntly. Um, and Jack had um, walked those streets and robbed, literally, I would say, you know, that like some houses he'd robbed like ten or twelve times. Um, so to say that he'd committed thousands of robberies sounds absurd, but over a twenty thirty year period, it's like probably and you know um a pretty conservative estimate just he was arrested about a year into uh, us filming together and and even on that single um uh arrest i think they they had him on upwards of a hundred um robberies but sometimes the cops would and you know for better or worse that they would um just clean up their books with jack so they'd arrest him and, and he would basically just say yes to anything they threw at him, knowing that um, it helped them and they would kind of be, you know, somewhat lenient on him as a result. But sometimes he'd be, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd cop a charge for 150 um, either uh, straight um, burglaries and then occasionally um, he would get um, charges of aggravated burglary, which would be obviously a bit more serious. But he would... He would um, he really was like an old school cat burglar, though. So he, one of his specialties was breaking into people's houses when they were asleep and in in the house. Um, he used to uh, tell me these amazing stories of synchronizing his breath with the breath of the people sleeping in the bedroom that he was in, and it would sometimes take him twenty minutes to crawl across the floor to get to a, a jewelry um, bowl or a, a, you know a chest of drawers, and would take him sometimes up to an hour to get in and out of a single room. So he actually saw it as sometimes as a, as a performance of sorts. So he, um, uh, yeah, he, he really loved it. He loved robbing people. <laughs> I think the, for, for me, the, the most beautiful part of that documentary that kind of just brought me to absolute tears was, was when he steals from you and he steals that that diamond ring and you just know it's there's it's just become it's just taken hold of him you know that 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 identity of being a thief and that you know when the struggle to survive is just so overwhelming it becomes your only instinct or something totally and and I think you know up until that point even though my parents are artists and we're involved in, you know, whatever you want to call the bohemian end of the street. And, but, you know, I, I still hadn't really had too many interactions with indigenous Australians and hadn't really, um, had proper, you know, certainly had never, um, developed a friendship with, with, you know, a, a part of the Curie community. So I was really mindful from the get go 
to I, I'd seen around me a well-intentioned but you know um, quite frustrating um, tendency with you know certain parts of the white leftist community to um, to go go to great lengths to try to identify with with you know indigenous um, parts of the community and then in doing so um, actually you know um, put their foot in it by yeah, there's a there's a real. I was just very I was very adamant to to um, to be absolutely upfront about how na- naive I was, and that I knew absolutely nothing, and that I didn't pretend to be an expert on on the suffering of 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 people who I had you know no personal lived experience, and and so my job was to was to really just be as as blank a slate as possible, and I think. Um, even though it, it probably took, and rightly so, you know, close to three or four years of, of filming, and and uh, for people like Gary Foley, who's a um, or another remarkable, iconic figure in in Australian Indigenous political um, uh, scene, you know, it, it took about four or five years of him looking on and seeing this young, you know, middle class white kid make a film about his one of his oldest friends, and actually develop any degree of trust. And to see that you know my motivations were actually sound, and that I wasn't sort of in and out for a, a, a hatchet job, because obviously Jack was very, very vulnerable at that time. Um, I mean, being you know addicted to smack and also homeless, and um, so it was. It wasn't really until he he did his first prison sentence, and uh, I yeah you know, would send him um, socks and underwear and. I remember he was a big fan of espionage novels, so I'd send him a lot of espionage novels in prison, um, and and went to visit him a few times. And it was really only after that trip that I think a, a few of his friends started to see that I, you know, that I was that I wasn't just um, a fly by night filmmaker in for you know for a for a, a for what I could get that it wasn't a, a transaction as transactional a thing as I think they had maybe assumed initially. That's a really interesting point. A lot of people have this image in their head that anybody who makes films makes loads of money, like uh, because it's a it's a medium that is so reliant on money, and there's so much fanfare and um, celebrity and um, prestige that comes with you know cinema. But your, I was talking to Nick this weekend. We're like we don't, I don't we I don't think. We we know anyone that's sacrificed as much as maybe you have for your artwork, um, and I know you're going to be too humble or modest to talk about this, but you you definitely the 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 product and the and the the experience that we see on screen is definitely something you personally have sacrificed a lot for, and I think that like we the the question is. Um, if you, would you make a big blockbuster film if 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 you were asked by say Marvel and uh, even if you had no control of the back end or how 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 would how would you treat that experience because to me you you're the last puritanical art filmmaker in Australia really look I, I I've, it's funny you bring this up at this exact moment I I caught up with a cinematographer friend yesterday who's who's just been offered the newest Star Wars like series which is like amazing and and you know remarkable remarkable for them um and you you do you do think about um what that experience would be like i think uh it's funny that there's a filmmaker chloe Zhao, who just made a film uh called nomadland um that just won the the golden lion at the venice film festival and she's also just finished a, a marvel film um and i'm friends with her cinematographer we were going to work together in Oklahoma a few years back so I've sort of been in touch with her, with him about her process and and how she can juggle her her you know her more pure art films with this you know much larger commercial enterprise I think if the story was was right and there was something in there that I could justify in terms of communicating something to a much larger larger audience that there was some kernel of some kind of 
purity in there, um, which I think is, you know, very, very rarely the case. But if you could find something, I I do feel that it would be worth worth trying it out for the experience. I wouldn't say no, you know. Um, yeah, but what is it that keeps you going in this space, man? Like I've been with you, we've we've slept outside libraries together. Um, we, you know, we lived in warehouses and done done it all. Like you, you're really willing to sacrifice, you know, a comfortable life which you've been offered many times um, to make these beautiful, difficult philosophical films. Like what what drives you in that way? It's it's it sounds really uh funny but it's actually uh Eddie Martin's film Jizzo there's a there's a quote from that where the main character of that documentary um talks about how I mean he's a graf- he's a he's a writer so he does graffiti and he's talking about uh, all he cares about is having a fat album that he can show his grandkids um and Somehow, for some reason, I I often think of those words, and it's kind of like rather than the more highfalutin kind of answer, or it's something that it just it just very simple terms. Like again, having two parents as painters, um, and seeing the sacrifices they made, and seeing what they weren't able to achieve by having to take you know full time work and and support and raise kids. Like I'm just. You know, it, it's 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 a it's partly driven by fear. You know, you because if, if you allow one degree of compromise into your work, um, willingly that doesn't come, you know, from outside, and 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 then that one degree, in the words of Danny Jones, another collaborator, if you work, you know, you you travel far enough, you know, one degree southwest, you. 10, 15 years down the track, you're going to end up in a very fucking different place. So I, my, my, my philosophy has always been, uh, just, just never compromise because compromise is inevitable anyway. You know, it's, things are always going to, um, descend upon a process to make something take three times as long or, or alter the way in which you can tell a certain story. So, um, why, why willingly introduce or dilute a concept um, at the outset when those kind of things, you know, the the world takes care of that um, in natural, you know, in, in due, due, due process. Mm, yeah, like what, you, what you're talking about um, earlier about the photo, photo album and I spoke to a lot of graffiti artists who, you know, really care about that sort of thing and graffiti is interesting because it lives in, in a space for a moment in time and disappears, you know, and that seems to be kind of what's happening with cinema with the new distribution models online or whatever but um legacy is is kind of a, a theme in in a lot of your work like capturing the legacy of these larger than life characters and that, that just leads me to Cecil Taylor like what an amazing um experience you had with that and maybe you could talk a bit about about that and how that plays into these ideas yeah i i uh i had I'd finished um, making uh, Barsity, which is a portrait of Jack. So that was that was an eight year process, and I think with each with each documentary I make, I, I try to kind of spin the the compass and find a different entry point into um, to find a different way into the form, I suppose. So to, to, whether that's a different methodology or um, a different uh, point on the spectrum between say drama and or between fiction and documentary um the length of a shoot uh subject matter always trying to find something um to 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 challenge my own sense of what filmmaking is and also to try to find a a real uh degree of risk in the work as well so um i was researching again sort of was doing a, a doing a bunch of writing. I just finished a feature film called Ruin that we we I co-directed with a guy Michael Cody in Cambodia, and was looking for an, a new film and had just made two narrative feature films. So I was looking to return to documentary, and uh, had this is 2014 and seven years prior I'd seen Cecil Taylor in New York uh, perform, and it had really just changed my life. It sort of reorganised my my 
right. illustrate that experience for us. Like. Yeah, yeah. So the the I was in New York with my girlfriend working on another film, and uh, we wanted to go out and see some music. There were two people playing. There was Public Enemy and Cecil Taylor, and I'd always wanted to see Public Enemy, um, and to see them in New York would have been fucking amazing. But uh, I knew somehow that I wouldn't get another chance to see Cecil anytime soon. Anyway, um, so uh, splurged on the most expensive tickets I could afford and uh, went to see this show. It was, he was supported by John Zorn. Um, and I remember he, when he... Just, just hold on. What did you know about Cecil Taylor prior to this? Yeah, so my, my dad had been, um, you know, not, not like a huge fan of Cecil, but he had his sort of more iconic album. So he had Conquistador and he had Unit Structures. He's sort of, his two like breakthrough late mid late 60s records um and and so i knew i knew him in a in a in a only in a in a in a fairly um nominal fashion you know i I just i knew a little bit about him um but i knew that he was someone really important to to check out but when he uh when his set started and he appeared on the side of stage doing what appeared to be some kind of ritualistic dance and it took him, I think, 15 minutes to get from the side of stage to his grand piano to sit down to then launch into the, the most aggressive. And this is a man who, at that point, was in his late 70s. He was, you know, 78 years old. Um, he then launched into the most physical, aggressive, relentless uh, piece of piano music I think I'd ever heard. And because it's at the Lincoln Center, which is, you know, kind of, it, it's like a, a large. Um, uh, hall in New York and it's it's a it's you know in midtown <clears throat> and you know traditionally is is the kind of jazz that gets programmed there there's a bit of a split between like the the downtown scene and the midtown scene so for Cecil to be playing at that kind of venue was especially with John Zorn was a little bit unusual and I think they made the most of it by um, basically after that hour almost two-thirds of the entire audience had cleared out of the venue so he just uh, leaving only the the like poorer students and musicians who are sitting up in the stalls. And for those that don't don't know, um, I mean he's he's playing and music's fucking out there. It's like nothing you've ever heard someone do with a piano. Yeah, I mean his 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 music to call it freed jazz even is it feels like. It's doing it a disservice. It it it's, it is really like nothing else you've ever heard. I mean, he, someone once commented that his piano playing style is like playing eighty eight tuned drums, so it's unbelievably percussive. It's unbelievably fast. Um, Cecil, obviously, being really influenced by, um, or you know, a, a lover of of pianists like Thelonious Monk, and and who he, you know he he talked about the the tone of Monk, like every note being like a a bell. Being this, uh, and so Cecil wanted to create that kind of tone, but in this unbelievably muscular, overdriven, maximalist kind of overload of of, of sound. Um, it was beautifully um, described when he f- performed. It was at a jazz festival in like '58. So this is when his his music was still really um, misunderstood and 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 you know quite reviled by by a lot of a lot of. Um, you know, uh, jazz players and and critics. They described him starting his set and said when when Cecil started playing piano, the audience started uncomfortably shifting on their feet as if the ground beneath them had become suddenly um, unbelievably hot. Um, and there is this there is this period where people talk about it where you need to kind of break through a certain pain barrier in unlocking the joys of his music because it's it's very very. Um, it's it's difficult stuff. So you witnessed the pain threshold be unbearable for the majority of the audience, and then you witness him kind of knowingly look towards the people who had managed to bear it. Um, and what happened next? Yeah. So he. So you you you're left with um, basically you know a thirty percent full venue, and Cecil looks around, and smiles stops playing, invites the people who had the, you know, the cheaper tickets up in the stalls to come up to the front. And so suddenly you've got what was a, a huge kind of hall concert suddenly becomes this very intimate, almost like a club-style size audience. 
and just as a as a fuck you he he then uh performs the most beautiful 15 minute rendition of somewhere over the rainbow totally delicate gentle like as lyrical and as as gorgeous as as you know and and i just looked around and i've never seen so many people simultaneously weeping at a at a show it was just all these grown men and women just like sobbing and so that experience in 2007 was really uh you know it it had it had reorganized my cellular structure honestly i'd never seen a piece of music uh performed like it DX as a musician, have, have you? Do you recall when you've experienced a moment like that, like where you've seen someone perform live and there, it's just rearranged your nervous system? Yeah, definitely a, a couple come to mind, but nothing of the power you've just described. Like, generally, it'll be a, a band who's designed like to make that kind of noise and obliterate you but something for something delicate as you've described it to have that impact i can't think of anything though that sounds as as much as you've put into this description it does sound formative yeah it was it was it was something about the 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 combination of the two aspects and so fast forward seven years and it was 2014 and i was just listening to some cecil music and and uh brought up an interview with him on YouTube and uh, had never heard him speak. And there was something about the tone of his voice. Um, he sounded like he was about 3,000 years old or like he was a mortal. And as soon as I heard his voice, the idea of uh, this project that I and subsequently went to New York to track him down for hatched, which is the idea of using the, the narrative conceit of time travel or the idea of him as a time traveler. So basically making a a science fiction free jazz biopic about Cecil. Um, so uh, uh, laying a fictional skin over the top of his, his remarkable life story. So I um, wrote a treatment, managed to get a, a, a small grant to get over to New York, had no way of uh, tracking him down. At this, at this point, he was already 85 years old. He had no manager, had no record label to speak of, <clears throat> there was, you know, certainly no website or any any way of emailing anyone to get in touch. So the only way I uh, realized I could uh, find him was just by going to pretty much like free jazz shows and poetry readings and looking for the oldest person in the room and saying, hey, I'm a filmmaker. I'm looking for Cecil Taylor. Do you know him? Do you know where he lives? Do you have any information? And I did that for probably like two months and ended up meeting finally at a venue called The Stone, which is this amazing shopfront venue that is no longer um, there down in Alphabet City, which was started by John Zorn, and met a guy called uh, Steve Delachinsky, who's a sadly passed away now, but remarkable um, poet in the um, downtown scene, and uh, and he knew Cecil's address. So, um, and he... Uh, you know, being the true New Yorker, he was like, make sure you fucking give me a credit um, for passing on his details. Um, so I, his address was in Fort Greene in Brooklyn, um, borrowed a friend's camera, really had, didn't quite know what was going to happen other than I just knew I had to uh, get through to him um, and have one, one meeting. So we, I would camp outside his house um, sometimes for 12, 14 hours a day and did that for like a week. I remember I was reading HG Wells um Time Machine cuz it seemed like a a good text to like prime the vibe. Um and after 7 days um this very again diminutive uh gentleman opened the door and said um what's your name? I've been watching you. And I introduced myself and he said, "Well, well, you seem very very patient. Um so would you like to have dinner tonight?" And um, we went had Italian food that evening. I, you know, I, I I basically pitched the idea of the film to him then and there, and and he was like strangely really really into it. We hit it off like really quickly, and um, and within about two weeks, I was living at his house, so living in this the ground floor of this amazing four story brownstone that he'd lived in since the mid eighties, and it was kind of perfect timing because uh, he'd had a 
a friend who had just moved out who was kind of like a live-in carer slash archivist slash personal assistant. And so um, struck a deal with Cecil whereby I became that person for him. So would, you know, cook him food and bring him the New York Times and his, you know, pack of cigarettes every day and his goat cheese on toast and his, you know, his um, glass of champagne with lemon gelato in, in it, which was his favourite drink that a opera singer in the mid-60s had, had introduced him to and and uh, basically lived with him on and off for the next 18 months and uh, and just became unbelievably close. We spent hundreds and hundreds of hours just, you know, a lot of that time was not shooting or recording anything, was just like listening to him um, regale me with his sort of endless, remarkable, uh, sometimes quite fractious uh, looping stories. Was he tying into that? Was he receptive to the science fiction aspect of the film? And, and what was his take on that? It's, it's funny. I actually, I have that, um, I have his response recorded because I just wanted to, um, you know, again, not similar to Jack, you know, Cecil had a lot of people around him who, again, you know, rightly so, were a little bit suspicious of this person who was suddenly living with him and, you know, cooking for him and they, you know, they wanted to, to, um, to make sure that I was, I was legit. So I wanted to have a conversation with Cecil on, on camera about the film itself, just to get a sense that he was, you know, really on board. And so I was like, you I remember saying, so Cecil, you, you, you know, you realize that this film is not going to be a straight biopic. It's really looking at you as a, as a time traveler. And I remember his response was, well, I am a fucking time traveler. So there's, there's no fiction there whatsoever. And that was, that was all I needed. Um, I remember I, I showed him a, a, a rough cut of a, just a short kind of mood reel we cut together. And there's a lot of slow motion throughout the film and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of like macro close-ups of Cecil. And I remember him, um, his response was, oh, you would, I, I thought you were talking about time, but this film is actually about time. <laughs> Which sums up Cecil like pretty well. I love the story um, of you going with him to um, Ornette Coleman's funeral, right? Yeah. Can you can you t- just recount that because it's? Uh, I mean, I w- as grim as it sounds, I would have loved to be in attendance. But um, yeah, it's such a tragic. I mean, listening to Ornette records and Cecil records really go hand in hand so I imagine him then attending his friend and kind of the person who was so emblematic of his scene yeah passing away did how, how did that affect him and what was that experience like yeah I mean, I mean Cecil was really he was highly competitive you know and and really really driven you know getting back to what we were talking about uh the start of the the chat I mean Musicians that he collaborated with, um, again and again, they talk about just being absolutely obliterated by his work ethic. Like he would practice 18 hours a day, you know, when he was at Antioch University in the early 70s. There's stories about him not leaving his studio for days on end. Um, And even at age 85, he would often uh, just outlast me in terms of his stamina of an evening you know would be out at a bar and he'd be up until 10 o'clock in the morning just drinking champagne smoking cigarettes wanting to keep shooting the shit and be like i have to i have to crash man i can't keep up you know um so his his stamina was was really really unbelievable but i think that that was really born of a, a a deeply kind of competitive spirit because he wasn't accepted in the way maybe that you know Miles Davis or Ornette Coleman or um, other kind of luminaries in the free jazz scene were. I mean, he he was certainly like he's considered now, you know, one of the four or five kind of key iconic figures um, responsible for the coining of the the term. For, um, but comparatively, it was it was quite late in coming to him. So um, as a result, he had not misgivings, but he had mixed feelings about a lot of his peers um, uh, and would sometimes, you know, playfully kind of rib them. He had kind of these somewhat um, 
this kind of admonishing series of uh, nicknames for for different uh, you know f- players in the scene. Like Miles Davis was MD, the Mean Devil, and um, you know Ornette Coleman was Ornette Poo, and like he had this like. But we were there the day that uh, he got the news that Ornette had, had died, and it, it you know clearly affected him very 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 deeply. I mean he was just speechless. Um, and then spoke really eloquently about you know how he was really the last one left at that point, and so he was invited to play at on its uh, funeral, which was um, held at a, a very very uh, iconic church uh, again in Uptown, um, and uh, and because I was still his carer at that point, I was in charge of getting him dressed and getting him to the to the gig, you know, and. Uh, that was an unbelievably frightening prospect because there's just there's no rushing Cecil. You know, quite often he would take four to five hours to get ready um, to go anywhere, and and just talk a bit about how he dresses for people that don't know. So Cecil uh, has the most remarkable sense of style. Like to give you a, a sense of, uh, he had a series of uh, outfits designed by Izzy Miyaki and would. Um, he did a lot of Missoni. He was like doing, he, he had this amazing, um, most of his wardrobe was, hadn't really changed since like the, he had still had a lot of stuff from the seventies right through to the, the, the eighties and nineties. But this is this, cause he's caught a Kiowa and Cherokee. So he had this part na- native American influenced, um, spent a lot of time in Japan. So he had this like Japanese sort of, thing going on um yeah he he cut a mean silhouette on the street you know <laughs> he was um even he's yeah he's he's uh even up until i think it was like and he's when he's 87 like gq did a did a photo shoot about his sense of style there's an amazing photo which they used at his his funeral which is part of a um <laughs> part of a gq um feature on on the um the the uh, the icons of free jazz and their their fashion sense, but um, uh, yeah, getting him to this this funeral was was unbelievably stressful. We were about forty five minutes late, and I remember on the bill was Pharaoh Sanders, there was Yoko Ono, there was this really amazing lineup of of people paying their respects and doing short performances in this this really um beautiful beautiful huge church, and Cecil. I remember arrived and just started uh, arrived at the church and just started walking down the middle of the aisle towards the front of the stage, and and you're standing next to him. Yeah, and I'm realizing that oh fuck, he's gonna just go to the fr- like someone was talking, someone was giving their you know their own words about on it at this point. So I had to wildly kind of signal to the person organizing the service, and the person talking was asked to then sort of wrap up and. Uh, someone quickly got on the mic and said, okay, and now we have uh, Cecil Taylor. He's just walked into the building and every, everyone turned and started applauding. And he just walked, walked up to the piano, did this amazing, very, very minimal, um, unbelievably delicate uh, eight minute performance, recited a poem and then just turned around and walked out again. (laughs) Didn't wait for anyone else to perform. I was like, I was, Desperately excited to see um, Ferris Sanders. I hadn't seen play in about like twelve years, and um, and Yoko as well. But all Cecil was interested in doing was going to get a chocolate milkshake. So we we were there for fifteen minutes, and then we were out. We were out again, and found ourselves at a midtown diner. Um, yeah, drinking a chocolate malted. Fuck me, that's like the concert of your life and you're forced to leave it was a it was a fucker it was a good it was a good chocolate milkshake cecil loved uh chocolate milkshakes and um and uh and butter pecan ice cream he had this amazing because his his father was a uh was a cook and he also had um so this amazing uh taste in food sort of like this great like soul food thing infused in his in his love of Italian and Japanese, and but um, he did love a he did love a malted milk. What do you what do you take away from from all these figures? Like, 
Cecil, Jack Charles, Danny Jones. Like, what have the, what what mark have they left on you, imparted on you, or have they all been kind of different? Look, I I I think the the common thread is they've managed to uh, transform a certain degree of adversity in their lives into an unbelievably pure uh, output, whether it's Jack Charles on stage or Cecil's music or Danny Jones' uh, poetry or storytelling or his his skills as, as an actor as well. Um, I've constantly drawn to people who have had to learn to flourish and thrive under extraordinarily difficult circumstances and have managed to, to take, you know, trauma that would have crushed other people and somehow, um, you know, transformed that into, into something that has allowed them not only to just survive but to really uh, to, to flourish. Yeah, and I think I think that bleeds through in your work. You kind of distill these lives into an expression on screen, and um, yeah, it leaves you leaves you yeah with that kind of fermenting in your own life. And yeah, when you walk, as you approach different situations, you can't help but think of the way they might have thought about things. And yeah, so. uh, I mean, I, I I think between. I literally, I mean, I, I talked about, you know, um, I think between Danny, Jack and Cecil, their words would be, you know, echoing in my head 15, 20 times a week easily. You know, there's, there's, there's whether it's the way Jack treats a, a bus driver um, in, that, in that equanimity or the way that Cecil would, he was dealing with, you know, in his mid-80s, this very extreme hip pain and would have to walk up to three flights of stairs to get to his, you know, his bedroom on the top floor of his brownstone. And he had this, this inimitable way of laughing whenever he was in great pain. And uh, I've taken, you know, that from him, his work ethic, Danny's, um, uh, I mean, his, his unbelievable generosity for, um, yeah, I mean, the, there's, a, there's a really uh, conscious decision in a lot of these relationships to just seek out people who you want to basically kind of kneel at the, the the feet of really and and listen to and be be taught by you know I mean um, and in that in that regard I think the film the films are in some way secondary to the to what I would hope would be a series of friendships, you know, and the films are really uh, a relatively small part of what these three, four, five, six, seven year um, journeys are, you know, with these with these human beings. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the kind of well, they're the the kind of people that DX and I want to be speaking to because we see them existing outside of society and. They become countercultural in their in their very way of being, and and yeah, I think that 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 succinctly ties up what it is we're trying to achieve with this is is kind of echoed in in your in your films. But that's that, that's a really good point. I mean, I think you know, there's a there's a quote that we were banding about when we were making Hail, which is a McLuhan quote, which talks about the artist like the criminal as a social explorer, and this idea certainly from Jack and then again from Danny who'd also you know spent a lot of time in prison um I'm and Cecil in his in his own way because you know he, he was Native American black gay and also making this unbelievably difficult music at a time when you know no one wanted to hear it um so I'm really interested in people who are aff- afforded a certain perspective born of their to say they're outsiders, I suppose, is in some ways um, not the the best summation of, of of their lives, but it afforded a perspective born of this this moving between the lanes and this this uh, you know mercurial ability to you know Jack is just a, as comfortable uh, you know in a uh, room full of 
you know, ex-heroin addicts or heroin addicts or, you know, talking to a, a group of, you know, young guys in prison as he is at a, um, you know, a fundraising event for Sydney Theatre Company or talking to Kate Blanchett and Neil Armfield about whatever, the, you know, the next um, adaptation of Shakespeare that they're planning for, you know, the following season. And I was... But again, you know, the, the, he's he's always as generous and as present and as um, willing to to learn, you know. Um, and I think that's also a, a big a big part of what's drawn me to these people is is their uh, they don't become hardened in their own sort of sense of themselves. There's there's um, even into their seventies and or eighties. There's this very um, humble. Uh, adherence to an idea of uh, still being a student very much litmus media